Welcome to the IdleLink podcast. I'm JL Corbett, the editor and founder of IdleLink, an online magazine that publishes the weird, the odd, the curious, anything that's a little bit strange. On this podcast, I'll be talking to some writers that I've published in the past and getting to know them as people, not just as writers. My guest today is Kadeem Layla. Kadeem is a writer and film lover. He currently lives in Toronto, Canada, but he was born in Jamaica and has also spent some time living in London. His stories are perhaps best described as sci-fi or fantasy, and they seem to be largely character-driven and introspective. His short story, Memory Catcher, appeared in Idolink in August 2020. So, Kadeem, thank you so much for chatting with me today. No problem. Very, very happy to be here. Wonderful. So, I've been doing this thing with all the guests where I start off every episode by sort of giving my impression of them as a writer um, because we've spoken over email, probably over social media as well. But this is the first time that we've been, you know, in conversation. So, I'll tell you who I think you are. And you can tell me if I'm completely wrong, which I probably will be. (laughs) Sounds interesting. Love to hear it. Cool. So um, I've been on your website. I've been reading through your previous stories that you've had published. And it seems like your work centers upon the nature of the self. Things like identity, loneliness, um, connection to others or, or lack of connection to others. So this makes me think that you're perhaps um, quite introverted. Um, Now, beyond that, I've really struggled to build a picture of you in my mind because you don't share as much online as a lot of writers do nowadays. So um, that's all I've got, really, is that you're perhaps introverted. And to me, at least, you're something of an enigma. (laughs) I've never never been told that before. Enigma piece. So I'll I'll take that as uh, I guess I'll take it as some kind of a compliment. It seems interesting, you know, being called that. But yeah. um, no, that's, that's very interesting. I've never really had someone uh, give their perspective of me as a writer from the outside. Um, I guess I will say for the introvert piece, I think I definitely identify. I kind of introverted myself. I think I kind of uh, I do pretty well in social situations. I think people who know me, um, especially like people who know me more recently, um, like I was much more shy during childhood. I think. Yeah. I kind of broke out of my shell moving to college, kind of being forced to live away from home. And then I think I really started breaking out of my shell like early 20s. And people who meet me now can't imagine me as an introvert. They view me as definitely being more extroverted. But even then, I think I still have, um, I'm still very like kind of, I tend to overanalyze situations. Like, oh, was that awkward? Yeah. Weird. Like, I kind of like have that running script in my head. And I, I think there's also the piece of where I do like to kind of uh, recharge. I'm very, also very happy just being by myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, being that way just like entertaining myself for days at a time so uh, there is kind of a conundrum between the two things for sure yeah what I'm hearing is that I am completely wrong <laughs> no no I think the introvert piece because uh, a lot of the um kind of ideas that I have I think do like loneliness isolation is a big piece mm-hmm. of it too. I think those are things that I've kind of um you know dealt with growing up for sure and things that I'm still kind of um getting out of mentally so I think that's always been a piece of my I think also when it comes to piece of looking at nature of self and loneliness isolation as like how that ties to prejudice as well, which is something mm-hmm. that's been constant 
and uh, you know, living in different areas too gave me different perspectives on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I said in your intro, uh, so you've lived in three different countries. Um, so you were born in Jamaica, grew up in Canada. Was it two years that you spent in London? Right. So grade nine and ten. So it was like oh five to oh seven. Okay. Um, so I mean, these three countries, they're they're quite different in terms of culture. So do you think that living in three completely different places, um, do you think it affected your perception of identity and culture and things like that? I think, because uh, actually also I moved to back to Jamaica for grade eight. So that was just sort of a transition year while my parents sorted out the move from Canada to England. And going there, it's a much different experience, I guess, being kind of a Black person in Jamaica um, as opposed to being a Black person in, you know, even the Great Toronto area or being in, in London, especially, especially the area we're living in. It was near High Street, Kensington. So just pretty, like, um, I guess, you know, um, upper class kind of area in that sense. The company was like... Yeah, everywhere. yeah, it really and, is. Yeah, and then just always being asked as you're walking into your building, do you live here? People always be kind of suspicious of you being around. I think that definitely has like an impact on your sense of uh, self and identity. So I think in terms of like building this isolation, uh, that I think a lot of it stems from there because that was around the time that I started writing too. So mm-hmm. I think it kind of um, built, uh, kind of built up uh, definitely the theme of prejudice, which you know those kind of experiences, and even you know continuing uh, throughout life now. But I think uh, that was a very formative piece just because that's kind of the age as well, you know, 14, where you kind of become more self-conscious in general. Yeah. And then tie, tying that in with kind of the realization that like, oh, people will treat you differently based on how you look. And kind of like having that you know, experience firsthand, kind of learning the hard way. I think that definitely um, leaves a mark in terms of how how your sense of self-worth. So that's something I've been working on as well. And I think that could be a piece of like why the introvert piece tends to come across in the writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and I I actually read um, your essay, uh, Where is Jamaica? The the one that came out in Trad Magazine. And I, I, it was the first time that I'd kind of considered that question that you raise of, are you still Jamaican if you'd live elsewhere? Or what exactly is it that, um, that forms our cultural identity? Um, I found it fascinating, honestly. Um, so do you think that um, that these themes kind of come out in your writing, this kind of like search for identity? Absolutely. Um, because I think say to memory capture was a big piece of that. Because um, I guess with that one too, it was also looking at sort of a mental health piece. So like that's kind of what it came out of. Like at the time when I wrote it, I was in a very, uh, I was in a tech support job. And, you know, I, I got experience from that. I think uh, part of the introvert piece, not to sidetrack too much, but like honestly being in that job kind of forced me to break out of my shell too when it came to trying to interact and build rapport with customers at times. Mm-hmm. And then also being like, also trains you to be a bit more assertive as well when your people are kind of being very rude to you. Like, how do you do that in a respectful way as well? So I think that kind of helped with the social skill piece. But during that job, I was just very um, not happy because it wasn't what I wanted to be doing with my life. I was kind of worried about, you know, you're at that age, I think it was like 24, 25 when I started with them. Of like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? You're getting kind of stressed out about that. Parents giving you pressure to kind of figure out what you're going to do. You know, you know, you don't want to be in that position yeah. for the rest of your life. So I think I was just very unhappy. And uh, there's just this idea of my mom always said, of like, you know, just let go of the bad memories. And I thought, what if you could do that? You know, literally, like give, literally give someone else your bad memories. And that's kind of, that's where memory catcher came from, like during oh. that time. So that was... Um, yeah, so I feel like a lot of uh, some of the writing, sometimes the writing is just kind of a catharsis for me, sort of like purging of emotion. It's, uh, and I tried, to, I've always tried to shy away from uh, wish fulfillment in writing, I guess. That was something that I always, I never liked reading. So I guess that's part of why it 
sense to be darker and focus more on the loneliness isolation piece. It's like looking at the pieces of myself that I'm trying to you know, improve on or work on like, um, like my fifth book, which I will get to, I guess, but um, that one just kind of came out of basically a lot of catharsis of my negative emotions when it came to parental pressure, when it came to mental health and so forth. I kind of put it all into a character who's dealing with that and then kind of almost trying to work through my issues via that character. I think it's interesting that um, people seem to prefer to read about difficult topics like that. Like when you say that you shy away from wish fulfillment, um, I guess, I mean, as a reader, yeah, it it isn't that interesting, really. Um, We all perhaps want to read something that we can relate to. And I think, sadly, what we all can relate to is the more difficult topics of um, perhaps not fitting in or wondering who am I even with what you're saying about um your job in support like I've worked those jobs those customer support roles and felt exactly the same way <laughs> and um it's a it is an interesting area to work in I also think um because I know that you work in sci-fi quite a lot to me I think sci-fi at its core is kind of this search for meaning albeit in fantastical settings um so I do wonder if you perhaps favor that genre because of um your background where you were moving around quite a lot and and kind of searching for meaning I think that's definitely a piece of it I think just like it allows a certain freedom to be able to create your own rules in a sense when you're creating your world and so forth you can really um, so you're like, you know, it's interesting, like I dealt with this, but what if I could do this instead, like memory catcher? Like, what if I could yeah. do this? What are the implications of doing that? What kind of person would want, you know, to use memory catcher? Would there be a class system that would develop based on that? And I kind of just started expanding from all of that. And sorry to tie in uh, to your question too about identity, which I sort of <laughs> didn't really answer, sorry. But I think that that piece of, that piece of the uh, identity piece has come across in terms of, um, I guess, never really feeling like you fit in because like as i touch on where's jamaica you're in jamaica it's uh people you don't really you're not really viewed as jamaican when you talk at least because you don't have the accent you don't right. really understand all the slang those kind of things you don't realize as immersed in the culture in terms of even small things like i was going to visit my mom and i actually wanted to mail something to her first and i asked for the postal code she's like you're so canadian you know you're so canadian like they don't <laughs> so i was like oh i didn't know that so just like those small things and then you're just like oh i guess i'm not really jamaican but then when you're here obviously you always get the question you know where are you really from when you talk to people like that was kind of a common refrain when you say that you're from toronto or brampton or whatever people always want to like kind of dig because they don't oh really god that. so i think that it definitely gives that sense of always kind of like your identity is constantly in flux and i think that ties to the sci-fi piece too like you can kind of um, do that in a way that's not metaphorical like with memory catcher i made something that metaphorical made it very literal and kind of look at the ramifications of what happens with that and i think that's what i like about it like with the first book too it's a, it's a story that basically looks at interplanetary slavery and I'm able to look at a system like that where one planet has just basically been dominated, like it's a dead planet now, and all their inhabitants are slaves for another one. And kind of looking at the implications of that, you know, these two people selected to be officers of a new counter-terrorist force and putting, pitting them against the main uh, leader of a slavery group or a freedom fighter group in a sense. But looking at the, you know, that change perspective. So who's a villain here? Who's a hero? I think I've always been able to, it's the freedom of sci-fi that I love the most. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. It, it allows us to sort of try out ideas um, without being restrained by reality, I suppose, or cultural norms, because we can just create them because it's sci-fi. <laughs> Especially when it comes to politics, just to create your own political system. Mm-hmm. And I would say there's always kind of, I think with sci-fi, there's always an anchoring in reality. 
in terms of how people react to things, people's fears, um, you know, whatever kind of anxieties they have. I think that that's always ties into it. Even I think the best sci-fi usually touches on something that's very real, like Jurassic yeah. Park is kind of going too far with technology, biological technology, especially uh, things like that. I feel like there's always a thread of truth, even beneath all the more fake technology and so forth. Oh yeah. I've always said that with sci-fi, the people are all real. It's just the um the surroundings that are that are fantastical or the technology. Um I think when it comes to characterization, they the people always need to feel like somebody that you could know or someone that you've experienced before in order for it to be a good story. Um otherwise it'd just be a little bit hollow, I suppose. Because I always thought of uh, always think I think of Men in Black, uh, the first movie. Um, I, I, have you seen it? Yeah, uh, yeah, not for a long time, but yeah. <laughs> I've definitely done some rewatches, but there's that scene where Jay is a new agent for this, you know, force that I guess for the sake of the viewers who have not listened, I uh, watched it. For the sake of this, you know, undercover force that basically patrols extraterrestrial life on Earth, and he's asking the person who's going to recruit him, you know, why don't we just tell people? He says, "Well, the, you know, the person is smart. The people are dumb, panicky beings, and you know it." And you know, you think about how people react to people with you know different religions and so forth. Think about you know, like yeah, that's that's very true, and like that kind of gives it a real anchoring of why they don't just make it public. God, I don't remember that line, but it's so true, especially now in politics. This whole groupthink phenomenon where people are acting so irrationally, but you think if you just spoke to them one on one, they'd probably be quite open to discussion. But when it's you've you've got that horde of people almost who are so entrenched in their views, it's they're never gonna move an inch. I feel like social media is a piece of it. I've kind of felt uh, for a while now that it kind of take I don't know if it's just social media, but I've just noticed in terms of arguments, it seems like nuance isn't uh, yes. as common as it used to be. Like you can make an argument, you know, like with some of my pieces or something like the pieces on the blog or whatever, I'll talk about, you know, systemic prejudice. And then you try to like make a tweet that talks about systemic prejudice. It's like, oh, you're saying I'm racist. I'm not racist. I got, you know, I got my yeah. girlfriend. Like, it's like, no, that's, I'm not talking about that at all. It's just like dig a deep deeper, but the nuance is missed. When it, whether it's politics, it can be food. It, it can even just be like, you'll see someone post something saying, oh, you know, I like this athlete because they do this. And someone will say, oh, so you're saying you don't like this athlete for this. It's like, no, it's not related. Just nuance is missed. I think people just are quick to jump to conclusions. I don't know if it's social media, that possibly makes it worse with the nature of, you know, the quick responses. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was thinking this earlier today. I mean, I've been thinking this for a long time, as has everyone. I've been trying to stay off Twitter more recently because it's getting worse with um this infighting and like you say people kind of um grabbing onto a buzzword from your tweet and taking offense to it when that wasn't and twisting it into something that you didn't mean at all um but it's difficult really to not be on twitter because I it's one of the biggest tools I have as a writer and as editor of Idolink. I do so much promotion on there and it's kind of integral to to my business model <laughs> so I can't stay off of it. Um but it's like um it it's a, it's a double-edged sword definitely. Not one that I enjoy using. 100% because uh I know we were going to talk about uh, kind of traditional publishing versus self. And when you talk about the social media piece, like from, um, I follow this one uh, literary agent who works in Canada. I won't give her name, I guess, because she's kind of critical. She's more become more critical recently in her tweets of traditional publishing. 
because the way she's seeing it, the, the big piece of it was supposed to be, you don't have to worry about the marketing, you don't have to worry about distribution. They kind of take care of that for you. But from what I'm hearing, or what she's saying now, like traditional publishing, for a while, they've been bigger, even for um, fiction, on having the authors of a platform reach out to their followers, build all that. Uh, for nonfiction, that was always big, but it's become more of a push for fiction authors too, mm-hmm. to have a big following, to be able to get a lot of um, people to engage with their tweets or whatever social media. So that's become a big push for that. And then in terms of the distribution side, which is normally... You know, you think of the, the kind of the biggest benefit of a traditional publisher. Apparently, they haven't been doing a very good job with that either. I need to dig into the details. But I think there's issues with basically how um, they kind of categorize certain books and so forth. And publishers haven't been doing a good job with that either. So there's sort of that issue of, you know, it seems like the self-promotion side social media is so integral now. Like whether yeah. you want to go traditional or not. And then also being able to, you know, kind of balance the two out. Because I remember a writer for this creative writing course I took. She was saying that, you know, stay away from social media. That was one of her biggest uh, pieces of advice when I reached out after the course. She said, I'm like acid, but it is tough though, because you're supposed to be on there. And well, I guess I've also found it interesting that, you know, you're supposed to try to put your writing out there, try to build a following. But at the same time, most places, even if you put something on a blog, it's previously published now, they won't catch yeah. it. But I've always kind of never really liked that conundrum. Um, I, that, I think that was one of the ones that always irked me <laughs> when trying to put anything out. Yeah. No, I definitely understand what you mean. Um, because on the one hand, to some extent, as writers, we just want to get our work out there and we want people to read it. But then, right. as you say, if you put something on a blog, that's it. It's been published, as it were, and you can't... If I mean, you can still submit it to places, but it's got to be somewhere that accepts reprints. So it really limits you. Um, but I think as well, with the whole... Um, traditional versus self-publishing people always kind of put it into those two camps and for me it's kind of three camps because there's the big traditional publishers you know the big five that we all aspire to um, which I think has its own problems there's self-publishing at the other end of the spectrum but in the middle there's also these independent publishers the smaller indie presses that are big enough that they can do the marketing for you. They've got in-house editors and all of that. Um, But they're also small enough that they really care about the work that they publish and they want to build relationships with writers. Um, So I think for any kind of aspiring writer, a small independent publisher would be an excellent choice if they perhaps didn't want to go down the self-publishing route. That's good to know. I feel like as things get to expand, there's always more options. Because I know there's so many, um, even self-publishing has expanded to so many options too. There's you know different Amazon options and so forth, but it, it can be tough to kind of um, sort of make the plunge sometimes. Because mm-hmm. then you work, it's, sometimes it seems like kind of luck of the draw in a sense with what clicks a certain audience, what doesn't. I remember trying Wattpad for a bit. And I think I had like been on it for a few months. And I think after for a while, I just figured might as well put this on the blog, even though the blog doesn't have that many readers. I figured it might actually just have the same amount of readers anyway. And at least then I still kind of own it. So I was like, let me, I'll just take it off of here, put it on. Because so, especially with Watt, that is geared towards, I think, a lot. There's a lot of uh, fan fiction, I think. Yeah, there is. Um, that's what I associate with it with anyway. I don't know if that's still the case, but in my mind, it's Wattpad fan fiction. <laughs> um, now, I know that you've, so you've written three sci-fi novels two fantasy novels. Um, I think I read that on your website, but it seemed like you haven't published them. No, I've been, uh, well, not for lack of trying. It's been trying to yeah. get them traditionally published. I've had 
So I've had three requests for full manuscripts. Oh, wow. That's really good. Yeah. So, yeah. But I guess I haven't been able to get to that next step. But at least uh, I got there. And then the first one I got was um, said the pacing wasn't quite pacing wasn't quite for me I think was the exact wording okay. and that led me to going to join a critique group where I got more feedback on it I did a rewrite of that book since I'm actually two of them I need to rewrite so two of the books I need to rewrite so at the moment I say I have three like working ones that I can actually drop around and then one's on the site and then two in a rewrite mode I'm working on another one right now that I want to have done by year end and then um go to the rewrites after so are you are you still kind of set on the traditional route or would you ever think of self-publishing for any of those books? I think at the, at the moment, I guess the second one's kind of self, basically self-published on the site because yeah. I, I was willing to self-publish that one too because it was a short, it was only about 60,000 words, which is a bit short for a traditional publisher novel length. Mm-hmm. So I figured it's going to have a tougher time selling anyway. So let me just try it. But for the others, I'm still trying at the moment uh, while I'm still, you know, I guess uh, relatively young. I, I keep saying that, but, you know, time goes away. <laughs> Yes, while I'm still young, I'll still keep trying traditional, and then maybe it gets to a point where I just kind of try to do itself. But I would prefer traditional, even understanding, like I mentioned, that there still might be some hurdles to deal with for that, and that it might not be as uh, easy and convenient as it seems. I think I still want to try for traditional for the moment. So it's just kind of back to the drawing board, uh, took that pacing feedback, and I've worked on rewrites for basically all, like the fifth book, uh, the first book. Um, So I'm just hoping that maybe that pays off and I'll be able to get a bite someday. Yeah, I hope so. And it's good that they gave you some actual actionable feedback um, because I know a lot of the time people get full requests for manuscripts and then that's it and they don't hear anything. I would be uh, a little bit, especially with, I understand with the queries, but if it's, yeah, if it's a full, um, I feel like a sentence is nice and like that sentence is what got me on the route to getting some more feedback and becoming a better writer, I think. So yeah, it's nice to get that at least. And that has been the critique um, each time. So that's what I'm really trying to focus on with the pacing. That's why I moved to short stories. I was told by uh, one member of the critique group to try to do short stories instead because it forces you to condense the story down, tell a cohesive yeah. one, and just kind of bang it out quick um, to make sure that there is not, you know, no dragging and so forth. So that's kind of where Memory Catcher came about when we try that. And then I also wanted to try building up some credits to hope, hopefully that'll maybe help with the book if I'm able to build up a steady list. I have a, a poem coming out in January. So I'm hoping to keep uh, building on those as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, because publishers do look at things like social media followings and publications now, I think that's probably a very smart idea. And um, I mean, I really love short stories, uh, obviously, because I run a short story magazine. I love them because they, as you say, they force you to to tell a really tight story and like to any any um redundant words get cut it's all feeding the plot there's no fluff whatsoever um so yeah i think that is a really good idea if anyone wants to hone their storytelling try the short formats and i think it will really help um so i know we've talked a little bit about kind of the beast that is twitter and like the online writing community um, do you do you think are you quite active in the community or is there a scene in Toronto at all for writers? I guess in person so far. So actually I live in Hamilton, which is kind of a uh, close to Toronto. I guess okay. like it's probably about an hour drive. So that's the community that I've been in touch with kind of like in, in person. Um, so that's my first time really being around as an adult, being around a bunch of other writers and actually doing that. So I started off with it was a library group. 
just a library writing group and then did that once a week meetings. And then a group of people, about six people from that bigger group kind of branched, um, branched off to create this critique group where we have, you know, each week someone else's work, meet again, go over their work and then submit the next. So I think that's, that's honestly been like one of the most beneficial things. I think for people mm-hmm. who are looking for feedback, if you, they always talk about beta readers on like, you know, uh, you might get, you might get that in a form letter for a query for if you get rejected or online, they always say try to get beta readers and uh, people like that. So that's one of the best ways is to see if you can reach out online for any groups that are doing that, like reach out to the library if they have a writing group and then ho- hopefully you can try to even, if you're extroverted enough, you can try to get that going yourself once you meet more people. So that's, that's been kind of the, what I've done the most. I say outside of that, um, I haven't been as active online like i will kind of look through the community i think you know the algorithm gives me yeah. writers support but i wouldn't say that i'm engaging that much i guess because part of it isn't trying in terms of time you know with um you know full-time job and other things going on i try not to be on social media too much so i think that's been part of it it's like this i can again of mm-hmm. trying to get some stuff done make sure i'm doing my writing you know so i don't be also not to social media for that but then also trying to i guess cultivate uh, relationships and market and so forth so i'm still i think i'm still working out the balance in that sense yeah I think to some extent, um, the in-person events, um, I know I feel better doing in-person events in terms of just chatting with other writers. Um, online is so much easier, but then it is, it's addictive for one, which isn't ideal when you're trying to stay off social media. And, um, like we mentioned before, there is all this infighting and stuff, which I try and stay away from. So, I've been trying to do more in-person stuff. There aren't a ton of events in the city that I live in, but um, yeah, I would encourage anyone who has the opportunity to to get outside the house, meet other writers, and um, writing groups as well seem to be really useful. Um, in, in terms of that, um, with the feedback that you get from them, Obviously, you've been writing for a while now. How do you deal with um, negative feedback that you might get? Uh, I've been writing for a while, but I will say in terms of getting the feedback, like negative feedback, was it was kind of newer. Um, I've gotten some bit, bits and pieces there. You can improve on this a little bit, I guess. Um, I, I think part of it was not getting much feedback in general because like the queries is all generic. And there is that mm-hmm. issue of not knowing whether it's an issue, whether it's really is it your writing or is it just it's not right for them? Because yeah. that would just it's not right for me. So you never know. Because actually, just a week before I submitted titling, or before you had reached out to me saying you accepted it, another editor reached out to me saying, "Oh, it kind of lost me. It was not really for me. Like I kind of stopped reading halfway through." I was like, "Oh, okay." So I was thinking, "Do I need to redo it?" So I wasn't sure. So it's that conundrum. So that for a while, you just think maybe it's just not right for them. I'll keep working. Yeah. But when I- when I went with that critique group for the first time, I think it was just 2019, like kind of just pre-COVID. And um, I got like, you know, my fifth book. They kind of went through and just skewered it. So um, it was it was tough, like getting yeah. that much negative feedback at one time, for sure. I was kind of saying like, oh, this sucks. I, I think part, part of what helped is just because I guess with, um, I think my work at the time was doing proofreading and so forth. I kind of understood from the other side that, you know, feedback doesn't matter you can there is stuff to learn from this like this is a learning experience and i you know this is what i signed up for i wanted to get specific feedback instead of just the generic um stuff but it was still hard to kind of take it all one time i I think that was um honestly that was a big piece of it though is kind of trusting the group the person or the group that's giving you the feedback if you know it's hopefully coming from a good place um you know then easier to accept it obviously if it's someone you don't like saying they don't like your work then you know it's not going to go over well but i think it's a bit something that you we kind of trust each other that we're working on this. I think um, I was, I went up first. Um, so that was tough too. But then, you know, I also, it was reciprocal because I'm also giving them feedback on their pieces afterwards too. 
And, you know, sometimes it, it can be heavier criticism and so forth. Uh, even if even it's constructive, it's constructive, it can still be hard to take. So I also have to say it was almost, it was almost just like practice in a sense, being able to take that criticism. I think just trusting the group of people I was with that they kind of just want me to make me better helped. And then also I guess the sandwich method, you know, there's criticism, this is good. And then criticism kind of like, you know, some, at least some compliments sandwiched in or vice versa. So it's not just a constant string of negative. So there was some praise for the creativity, the concept, but there was a lot I had to rework. Yeah. I mean, it's tough getting negative feedback on a short story, but when it's a book, oh, it's so much, it hits so much harder because you've spent so many hours on it. And I think it's such a personal thing. Um, Even if it's complete wacky sci-fi, completely removed from reality, it is, it feels personal writing a book and having someone read it. And I know, um, so a couple of years ago, I wrote a novella and it was absolutely terrible. It was awful. Um, but I spent years on it and I think I spent too much time on it and I reworked it so many times that it just wasn't, it felt very heavy and just clunky. And um, I sent it to an editor that I really trusted his opinion. I won't say his name, even though it was a brilliant experience for me, but I don't know if he would want people to know this. But I sent it to him and asked him his opinion. And he took his time with it. The suspense was real. And he got back to me several weeks later. And he basically told me that it was unpublishable, which it was, that that really hurt. And he went into such detail of why it was unpublishable and the issues with the pacing and the plot. And he was right on every count. And I think I knew that to some extent before I even sent it to him. But just hearing it was so difficult. But, you know, every time I'm writing something now or editing something, I think of his words are sort of ringing in my ears. And it's actually been such a valuable thing to have him give such detailed feedback even though it was negative I honestly believe it made me a better writer but I think you've got to be tough enough to to take that feedback and yeah maybe spend a day or two kind of licking your wounds and being like well what do you know (laughs) but then eventually kind of getting over your ego and being like no he's right let me take this into the next thing that I'm working on I will say a key too is looking at if it's multiple people or like multiple groups giving you feedback, looking at what's consistent about the negative feedback. Yes. Um, so like if one person out of 10 possibly says, you know, they don't like the ending, you know, you don't have to maybe just rewrite what ending for them. But if everyone says the ending's, you know, terrible, then it's something you have to look at. Uh, so, you know, if like five people were telling me that they had to work with the pacing, it kind of dragged in this piece or they didn't like this. And it's like, I can't really ignore it, you know? So yeah. that helped make it a bit less personal, I guess, too. Like, Sometimes if it's multiple, even though it sucks, it sucks more with multiple people saying the same thing, but I feel like knowing like multiple people are saying this, I don't feel like it's a conspiracy against me as much. <laughs> they read it separately. They all came to kind of like similar conclusions. Maybe this is something I can actually look at. And yeah, same thing took probably, you know, a week in my case, licking my wounds before <laughs> I try to try to actually take in what they're saying. Yeah. Which is fine. As long, as long as it's a week and not years, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, you've kind of not, you can't really have an ego in this business. And if you've got multiple people saying the same thing, 
you've got to think to yourself, well, what's my goal here? Is my goal to be universally praised and people to stroke my ego or is it to become a better writer? And the only way to become a better writer is to kind of shoulder that horrible feeling of getting negative feedback and just use it and build your momentum that way. I think also just the lack of any personalized feedback from queries and so forth kind of made me more eager to accept it, even though it was rough to take in. I think anyone who's possibly been through maybe years of generic query rejections might be more open to hear the negative feedback. Yeah. Uh, even, even if it's, you know, not what they want to hear. I think that's like, okay, I'm hearing something. So someone actually read the work. It seemed like, you know, we know for sure they did. And that, that was a key piece too. Like I know, oh, they actually read it too, which was nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say what you said earlier about the editor who turned down memory catcher, um, that he said he, he stopped halfway through. That yeah. seems unnecessarily harsh. Like, <laughs> was it just me then? Yeah, no, I, I feel like he didn't, he could have omitted that comment. He Like, what are you going to use that comment for? That was so harsh. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then that was a case, though, where it was, you know, I didn't have to necessarily rework it that time. I just found the right person for it. But it, it's tough to navigate that sometimes in, like, do I need to rework this again, or is it just about finding the right uh, spot yeah. for it? And sometimes, sometimes, too, the concept is what throws people off. I have had um, a query rejected by the same agents, uh, two different ones, both times. They said the concept was easy. They said the writing style was great, which is something that I almost want to frame up on a wall hearing him. You know, <laughs> that. But yeah, it's both times it was a concept that was an issue because one involved suicide and then one involved uh, terrorism. So, you know, sometimes it, it, it's just tough sometimes to know concept is it the right person and so forth but getting personalized yeah. feedback to take that in maybe once you you know that um maybe if you go back to the same critique group and it's a better job now maybe you can know that okay i think i've hopefully done a better job with the issues they pointed out and maybe now i'm actually on the looking forward to finding someone that fits as opposed to somewhere where it's just going to need to be reworked right and if it's the concept that they take issue with i mean there's not much you can do with that it just means it's not right for them and I mean, it's such a subjective industry that you, you, no story is going to be right for every publisher. So I guess to some extent you need to really trust yourself as a writer as well, um, which is evidenced by the fact that Memory Catcher got turned down by someone else and then we went on to publish it in Idle Ink because it's a great story. <laughs> so... I thought we could actually finish off with a reading of Memory Catcher, um, which came out in 2020, August. Um, so before you get into it, I'll just give a bit of co uh, context as to why I decided to publish this story. Um, so Memory Catcher, it is character-driven sci-fi. Um, it's a really good example of that type of short story we were talking about where it's just tight storytelling. Uh, there's no dialogue, yet you build this really vivid scene. It almost feels cinematic in the way that I was visualizing it as I was reading it. The language is quite disaffective, which is standard for sci-fi, but we still instinctively feel concern for the protagonist. And I mean, personally, I really enjoy this type of story and it really represents what I saw Idolink as being when I first started it, which is a sci-fi or a horror publisher. Um, it, it's since mutated into something completely different from, from that, but that was the initial vision. Um, 
And also the timing of this story felt really um, significant for me. So brief history lesson. I started Idolink in 2017. I ran it for a couple of years and then I shut it down um, because, well, for, for a few reasons, but then I missed it. So I relaunched it in March 2020, which in hindsight, it's a terrible time to be launching anything. But um, there you go, hindsight, um, who could have known? Um, but anyway, so when you submitted Memory Catcher, it was during that first six months after the relaunch where things felt really shaky for me. I wasn't sure if people still cared about Idolink after it had been gone so long. Uh, I wasn't sure if if I'd be able to keep it going. So when I got this story in my inbox, it was a relief because it was this strong character-driven sci-fi story and it was just such a vivid viewpoint and I was just it it was a relief to get and I was like yes I am absolutely publishing this so that's why I decided to accept it um so you've mentioned a little bit before about the process that went into writing it um but for you kind of just briefly what what inspired this story yeah so um, thanks. So thanks for that, by the way. That's a really interesting backstory, and I appreciate that. And no, yeah, it was a good timing for me as well. So um, <laughs> looking at the timing of that, I think I had the issue with the, with the tech support. You know, I already moved on from that job by that time, but I was still kind of going through another phase of trying to figure my life out. I was kind of bouncing from like one part-time job to another. Um, just, just for, I guess, history lesson, take me four years now after that to get to finally getting a full-time position, like permanent. Mm-hmm. But, you know, working in print journalism, which is what I wanted to do, like editing, but just not much full-time work. So bouncing from part-time job to part-time job where you know, laid off like a few times by this point. Um, so still in that space of, you know, very negative uh, thoughts and kind of worry about my future, uh, like more pressure to figure myself out, more money issues too, because I've moved out by myself now. So all those negative thoughts. And sometimes when I'm kind of in that negative spiral, I just negative thoughts will come back to my mind out of nowhere. Like I will remember a bad interaction I had with someone, you know, like a year ago, <laughs> like I said, so my mind works sometimes. So it, it was becoming a lot for me. So that became like, okay, what if I could, you know, get rid of these negative thoughts? And I started writing Memory Catcher. So I think I wrote most of, I think I wrote that in one sitting. I kind of had that specific idea. And like I said, with sci-fi, even though the technology and so forth, the world may not be real. There's always real thread beneath it. Like cheating is kind of like a kind of universal fear for basically anyone ties to the loneliness piece and so forth. And, you know, I was kind of, um, even romantically too, I was kind of like, wow, like someone I really liked did, did not work out for me. And I was just kind of like pretty lonely in that sense too. Uh, I think this was also not just co-building up to COVID, you know, um, had a trip cut short in March, kind of yeah. isolated at home, all of that. So basically all of those things combined. Um, and I just wanted to put like, a universal fear when it came to what our memory would be, the bad memory. And I just thought, yeah, like what if we, you know, if someone could forget that someone had done that to them, would they just want to get rid of it and go back to that person in terms of like, you know, for comfort and, st- and stability, basically. So I think hopefully that answers the question on the backstory for it. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. Um, so I'll, I'll let you do your reading. So this is an excerpt from Memory Catcher. She couldn't remember how she got here, but she wasn't supposed to. Her name, her place of birth, her family were all lost to her. Sometimes she came close to remembering, seeing slivers of her past life cut through the memories forced on her. Those slivers, whether good or bad, were hers, and she cherished them for seconds at a time. There were other memories drowning her real ones, parasites controlling their host. The parasites were injected by people whose faces remained hidden. There were no windows, no night and day, 
The lights in her room were always shut off at some point during the day, announcing her bedtime. Yet days still lost their meaning without dates or the seasons. She measured time with her memories, counting the moments between a new one being added. She knew the memories weren't really hers, but were the only complete ones she had. She was still attached to hundreds, feeling all the pain that was forced on her. Her mind was a bounty of misery and insecurities. Some people want to be rid of the memories that crippled their lives in some way. The unrequited love, the betrayal by a friend. Others were hiding for something truly traumatic, trying to erase violence they did to others or violence inflicted on them. These memories were a gateway to pain, but they were also a gateway into the mind of the host. She knew their friends, their neighborhoods, and sometimes she even saw their faces. She knew their class, their race, their sexuality. These central parts of their identity were an anchor for most of the memories in her mind. Most of the memories were tied to something private that became public. There was another class of memories, usually reserved for the wealthiest of hosts. They had the luxury of purging the most trivial things from their mind. One rude encounter was reason enough to remove her memory. They were usually the bully in these encounters. She couldn't remember truly meeting anyone. The masked doctors were her only gateway to the outside world. She tried to speak to them, but they never responded. She started with threats, hundreds of memories ago. Her will became weaker with each memory, and soon enough, she longed to simply hear one of them greet her or answer if she asked them how they were doing. She now had to accept that she was only a tool, no different than a hammer that a worker used and unceremoniously disregarded. There was a time when she thought she must have done something to deserve such a fate, perhaps some sort of punishment, prison sentence. Time erased that thought from her mind. What was the point of punishment if you didn't know what it was for? Was it some lottery, sort of lottery to pick the lucky winners? Was she just one of many selected from a certain area? The white walls seemed to mock her, promising answers beyond, but unwilling to yield. What a great story. I just love it. That whole sci-fi aspect of memories and, oh, excellent story. <laughs> so um, to finish off, is there anything that you would like to promote? I guess I will uh, promote that um, I do have a beacon set up. It's um, actually something that my girlfriend helped me set up too. Just a good platform, I think, for writers in general. It's a nice kind of one-stop shop for all your publications. So I have my beacon page, uh, which I could send a link if you'd like. That just has all my publications so far. And I'll probably be putting up the new next film when it comes up January, but it has my it has a memory catcher via that link. And then also all of my other short stories published since. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll uh, put a, a link to that in the notes so people can have a look at everything that you've done. So, um, yeah, I guess that's us done for today. Um, I think that was quite a good episode, really. It was really fun talking to you about all this stuff. Um, so, yeah, that is goodbye from me. And um I'll be back next week with another Ida Winker and another interesting conversation. So, bye. Thank you so much.